Ford K9 LLC. Are you looking for a handler school, trainer school, or attend one of our one-week development courses for dogs, handlers, or trainers? Are you in one of the various detection dog scent sports doing nose work or scent work? We have classes and seminars for you as well. We offer trainer classes as well as seminars for many of you handlers. Ford K9 is not just in Vegas, but we can come to you with many of our seminars like K9 Cognition, Detection Using Cognition, The Trust Momentum, and many more. Ford K9 also offers fully trained detection dogs. Contact us. We have access to a variety of breeds of dogs that Cameron custom trains to meet your detection needs. All dogs come with a handler school when you pick up your canine as well. For more information, go visit our website, www.fordcanine.com. Welcome to Talking Sense, the podcast where we discuss all things detection dogs. Broadcasting from Scent City at the Ford Canine Training Center in Las Vegas, here's your host, Cameron Ford. Hello and welcome to Season 3 of Canine's Talking Sense and a brand new year, 2021. Hopefully this year uh, we can find our way back to normal or maybe in the next four years we'll get back to normal. Who knows? Hopefully a lot sooner than that. Um, I'm optimistic that uh, you know later this year more of what we all do in the detection dog world, whether it be uh, competitions, those that are in the uh, nose work world, or uh, those of us that are in the professional world have the ability to attend conferences more freely. Uh, 2021, uh, I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Uh, It definitely can't do any worse than 2020, you know, mark my words, I hope. Uh, Hold on. I knocked on wood there. So, uh, 2021 will be a great year and, uh, we will find our way back to networking, getting together, doing training, seminars, competitions, and so forth. With that said, we are season three. I can't even believe this myself. This is now entering our third year of doing the podcast. Um, have a lot of great episodes already recorded, uh, have some new ones planned that are going to be really fun. Um, and of course, the feedback I've been getting from all of you listeners uh, as to what you guys want to hear or who you want to hear from next. In addition to that, we also have the webinar series we've been doing this past year. So I will keep doing uh, more and more of those webinars uh, with more of the actual for from the uh, podcast guests, uh, the ones that you guys find really interesting and need that little extra. I want to see uh, what we're talking about. So having that uh, ability to visually get information, not just listening to it, because I know sometimes some of us are better at being a visual learner than just hearing something. It's kind of sometimes hard to grasp uh, what we're talking about. So the webinar series will continue. In addition to that, the I want to give a few you know shout outs and thank yous over the past year. I want to thank uh, individuals like Dr. Michelle Mon, Dr. Nathan Hall, Dr. Lucille Lazarowski, and Bart Rogers, Pat Nolan. Uh, speaking of Pat Nolan, if you guys are in the market for 
really good scent wheels. I have mine. You guys have seen them. I sell for Pat as well. So whether you go to me or go to him, you're getting the same thing. The stainless steel, portable, they kind of fold up, so it makes it really easy to take with you. Scent wheels. Pat engineered something brilliant there with some help with the guys that he works with. But, you know, he has made a big difference in some of us and what we do in being... One, applying a little bit more of a science approach to uh, how we put odor out or the way to protect the odors as well as to ensure the dogs are detecting the specific targets. It's nothing that per se that any single person invented is just putting things together. And a lot of us do that. A lot of us take various things that we see and then put them together in our spin. I do that. A lot of great trainers do that, you know. You know, you should always be trying to see different things, look at things from a different point of view, maybe mixing some things from your experience with things that you're learning from the science community and saying, hey, a little bit of science mixed in with experience is a really good answer specifically for the dog in front of me. And as many of you guys hear me say through the videos and podcasts and so forth, I focus heavily on... I want to train the dog in front of me. And that is where cognition comes in. Where my next thank yous come in is going to be Brian Hare, who has, you know, done a lot in the Duke Canine Cognition Center, helped me get my understanding and footing in the cognition aspect with dogs. And the number one thing I always take away and I try to share with everybody who comes to the cognition seminars that I put on is the more we know about that dog in front of us, the better we are going to be and the more efficient we are going to be at training that dog. So on the cognition front, stay tuned for those. There's a lot of seminars coming up. Uh, go to FordCanine.com. Go to the classes and seminars page. You'll see all the classes and seminars I offer here in Vegas. But again, if you scroll down to the bottom of the page, there's a calendar there. And you can go through each month of the, month of the calendar and then click on a specific seminar that you see. Maybe the seminar is close to where you live at because I have all of the events, not only what I do in Vegas, but also what I'm doing when I'm traveling around. And if you see a seminar that is near your area or one in an area that you want to attend, click on that event. A little box pops up. And in that box, if you scroll down a little bit, you will see who that contact person is and their email. You would be able to email that person, find out if there's any open spots, whether it be working or audit, and see if you can attend. That kind of helps streamline it so that way you're not necessarily emailing me and I'm telling you to go email that person. I'm trying to make the website as streamlined as possible. So, and of course, speaking of the website, many of you have already seen at the end of 2020, we redid the website, made things again easier to follow, easier to find. You can find all of the webinars now that we've ever done on the Vimeo platform, which is linked to the website. The online store where you can purchase not only uh, the scent wheel I just talked about, but also the uh, scent cans, the glass bottles, uh, Wattman paper, and then of course all the fun novelty stuff for Canines Talking Sense. We have the shirts, the hats, the whole nine yards. So I just wanted to make something much more unified, much easier to follow, 
and better experience for all of you listeners and people who follow not just Canines Talking Sense, but also my website. So enough of all that promotion. I wasn't trying to make it a promotion, but I wanted uh, just to share information and let you guys know what we have done in preparation for 2021 and uh, some of the exciting things out ahead. And as usual, you guys can always email me at Cameron, C-A-M-E-R-O-N, at Ford, F-O-R-D-K, number nine.com. So email me, Cameron, at FordK9.com. Now, a little teaser for this upcoming episode, the first episode of season three. This individual is well-versed across both platforms in sport and in professional. And with that said, you are off to the episode now. Hello and welcome to this episode of Canines Talking Sense. Today's episode is one I've kind of had planned for a while and I wanted to sit down with this individual uh, well over a year ago and we finally are connecting um, he and I go way back uh, a number of years now. We're getting close to 20 years back in our history of knowing each other. But I wanted to bring somebody, again, who had experience both in the professional operational world, contracting world, and then, of course, even in the sport realm. And what I kind of internally laugh at is um, he's getting really well-known with a lot of the old uh, – uh, as they always say, the housewives or the older ladies that do sport world stuff. And he's super popular with that crowd. Uh, so without any further ado, Don Blair, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for taking your time to do this. But for those who may not know, give us a short little you know version of your background, how you got to where you're at today. Well, Cameron Ford, thank you very, very much for having me on. And um, so it's... It, in a nutshell, it was just a super blessed and has been and continues to be a super blessed career. So I started with dogs in uh, 4-H in Broomfield, Colorado. And from there, I got into show dogs, obedience dogs. And uh, I got married when I was 18. Uh, my wedding present was a little bloodhound puppy that we finished her championship and uh, started to do kind of law enforcement tracking with. I apprenticed under uh, the Denver Police Department head trainer named Jesse Lewis, and I uh, got hired on by the La Junta Police Department when I was 20, turned 21 at the police academy. Uh, about six months later, I started the streets with my first patrol uh, narcotics and patrol dog ranger. Um, I did that. Ranger and I moved around to a couple different departments in Colorado. And uh, at 25, I was offered a position with U.S. Customs in El Paso, Texas. I took that position. I worked that for about 18 months and was offered a position at headquarters. Um, I went to headquarters in Front Royal, Virginia as an instructor. I was there for nine years, went back out to the field, made it all the way up to the rank of uh, branch chief in Nogales, Arizona, 
and was baited away by the private sector. I was with the private sector for three or four years. Um, we had contracts all over the world, um, Iraq, Afghanistan. Um, we had several different international uh, places that um, uh, Las Vegas. And then we ended up, uh, I ended up leaving, going back to customs and running their breeding program and research and development. Um, I left the second time to go to uh, the back to the private sector here in Chicago, where I still am today, um, for the Amtrak Police Department. And I now have some government contracts that I do privately and the Chicago Police Department anti-terrorist unit. And I also have my own business for seminars, private lessons, problem solving, consulting, et cetera. And uh, that's kind of how I ended up here. And you're apparently not busy enough from what I can tell. So, <laughs> well, I, I can tell you this COVID hasn't helped me, but thank the Lord for uh, the CPD and some of the government contracts. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm still staying a little bit busy, but um, I'm building a training center out in Rochelle, Illinois. And uh, it's about 80% done. So I, my hope is to do some international training and obviously law enforcement training. And whenever available, the nose work people um, are very, very good. Um, I have loved that sport. I've been involved with it for almost uh, nine years, eight or nine years now. And uh, love the sport, love the people. Yeah, no, you're you're like me. I, I've uh, been doing more and more in the nose work and sport community, and I love everybody involved in it. You know, and I made my joke a second ago because everybody, you know, oh, the old little ladies doing the nose work stuff. But man, talk about people who are dedicated to their dogs, dedicated to learning, wanting to be better. Uh, in many cases, very open minded to ideas and suggestions where the world that we came from offering ideas and suggestions, you know, was a much harder road to hoe than sometimes, uh, uh, it is, you know, these days, which kind of brings me to the, the first question I have is I'll start usually where I usually end an interview is, um, because, you know, you have the extensive history with this, how have, or what have you seen as the biggest evolution or change in detection dogs, let's say over the past, you know, 10, 15, 20 years? Well, depending on the, you know, in the sport with uh, nose work, um, I've seen great improvement and lots and lots of learning. In the professional side, I, I've almost seen a regression because of the lack of the application of just true behavior. Do this, this brings this, wait for this behavior and then reward it. And, um, you know, unfortunately, there's been almost a changeover to compulsion, which in detection never brings the desired results as far as I have seen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's, you know, you can't force things and know that they'll be reliable later on when there's not the means to apply that 
adversive or you know whatever the the mechanism that you use to get the dog through some type of physical manipulation uh, to do something. Uh, the ability for the dog to free think and make decisions and learn and get reinforcement for those decisions is usually and almost always far more reliable once the the task is learned. And, you know, it's, you know, as we both know in the professional world, there's a lot of tribal or regional way of doing things and uh, certain sections um progress or evolve uh, much easier. Other areas, it's tradition. We've always done it this way. We're going to do it this way. It's not broke. Why are we going to fix it? Um, You know, how have you seen uh, some of that change? Some of, you know, because you and I teach a lot of the same type of uh, more science-based or psychological-based methodology, not that it's anything crazy new it's a lot of stuff we talk about it's been around for a long time it's just not as common or hasn't been until recent years uh common for for training uh, of detection dogs how have you seen some of that change the um going from you know obviously for both of us scratch alert dogs to passive and then now passive and indirect type of training well i think it, it takes two paths, right? If you're if you're talking about um, the sport dogs, I think they're they're advancing pretty quickly. Narcotics dogs, um, there's still a split, and of course, with all of the legalities that are changing laws almost literally on a month by month basis, um, there's a lot of just hanging out and waiting on what we're doing next with that, and then you have the anti-terrorism units that are, um, you know, going full bore and very healthy, um, not necessarily well-funded, but going full bore and doing some really, really good uh, progressions. Um, I, I know the, the units that I work with, we work on a bunch of tactics. We worked on a bunch of uh, advancements to try to really make the real world situations come true. It's a different world now than, of course, it's not a different world at the border, but um, for the state, local police departments for narcotics, it's a different world um, because of the handling techniques. You've got defense attorneys trying to pluck apart different things because we don't have enough expert witnesses being hired to combat their bullshit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, and it's you, you brought up a really good point, which is uh, I and I fully see it as well. Your we'll just use the special operations programs or the programs where there is, uh, like you said, the anti-terrorism element or a tactical element that has really embraced and evolved with you know methods. Um, where the dog and handler aren't always on a six-foot leash. And because of that requirement or that need, uh, realized, oh, wait, I can communicate to my dog utilizing, you know, whether it be uh, a marker bridge system or um, a, a utilizing communication uh, to get the dog to understand what the task is, but to do so without... Um, 
a level of adversives that potentially cause confusion or stress. You know, they're able to now do things uh, and communicate to the dog without inducing stress to get them to do that. Or the big part is overstimulate the dog. You know, the, the lessons learned in that community was, okay, I don't necessarily need a dog who is balls the wall crazy for a toy because even though that looks good on selection tests and it's nice to know that that dog will do anything for that item, they lack that mental flexibility to adapt, especially in an environment when you're not right there. And through those lessons learned, it's filtered out into other segments, uh, whether these guys move on to other programs or do other things or people like yourself that have gone from contracting world, uh, working with special units to back to working with local law enforcement and showing them things that, you know, you've been able to do with dogs uh, has helped some. But at that same token, though, there is that steeped in tradition. This is the way we've always done it. This is the way there's no need to change. We're successful. And you and I do take an approach of, okay, that's fine. You know, that can work for you. But don't you want to be better? Don't you want to challenge yourself? Or in some cases, challenge what you've believed, you know, by doing something or by being, you know, evaluated, i.e. or scrutinized by an outside party that tests those things. And it's not always comfortable to do that. You know, a lot of A-type personalities um, don't want to fail in front of other A-type personalities. And we're afraid to either document or put ourselves out there when really by doing that, we're going to be better. It's not easy, but nothing about evolving is easy. Uh, when you're doing it right. And, and the point you brought up a minute ago was the sport world adapts pretty quickly and evolves pretty quickly because those people are paying to learn and paying to be better where they're on us on the professional side, we get paid to do this no matter what. So if we're, if we believe things are working, there's no need to change. No, I, I think you're exactly right. And the, the other point is that, it's more important for our drug dog, bomb dog handlers to really, really adapt the better system in the quickest methodology that they can versus the sport people. But the difference you hit on the head is the payment, right? Mm -hmm. We're paid to make these decisions and they are paying to learn and to adapt. Yep. And, um, I, I've always been a firm believer in the it, it, what I preach is a, a continual circle of improvement. Mm -hmm. And so when we're not working on this, we should be working on that. I mean, the 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 truth of the matter is is that with law enforcement, we're always should be always preparing for the worst day, which mm -hmm. means, you know, we've got to be there on and ready to do what we preach we can do. So if that's a 45-minute search with a 97% accuracy rate, then we need to be able to do that any day of the week, any day of the month, and twice on Sunday. Yeah. The sport people have, you know, they can prepare for a certain weekend. 
And so that's a little bit of an advantage. But mm -hmm. I think you would agree there are some sport people out there that are pretty damn good. Oh, wow. And yeah. Some that I sit back and I'm like, I wish you were a handler in the professional realm just because of, you know, how they look at working their dog. You know, yes, the dog is a detection tool, but obviously having that dog um, with them as a their companion um, gives them the ability to really know their dogs. Whereas, you know, on us on the professional side, we've have mentalities that no, when you get home, that dog's locked in a box. Don't let it socialize. And obviously there's some rules and, and things like of that nature. If this dog is patrol trained and things like that, that, you know, there are responsibilities we have to, you know, secure this animal in a way that's safe. But with that yeah, said, sure. you know, the dogs that are single purpose, um, you know, there's, I'll talk about this is, you know, one of the fears that comes up or things that talk about people talk about is, Oh, if you let the dog in the house with you and spend time with you, you're going to turn into a house pet. And a lot of times my response to that is if that is going to happen, you pick the wrong dog to begin with, you know, you can have a relationship with your dog. You can live around your dog and it's not going to ruin its ability to do work. You know, can you do things that can change things? Sure. But if you selected the right dog to begin with, it's not prohibitive to live and be around your dog and it be part of your life versus it's secured, put away, you know, 90% of the time when you're at home and the only time it's out and with you all the time is when you're at work. Um, you know, just because like you, you, we see it over and over again in the sport world where that bond between that handler and that amount of time they spend with their dogs uh, gives them that really good advantage of knowing those nuances of that dog's behavior when they encounter odor. Well, I couldn't agree more. And I think the selection of the dog and in, in both areas, in both arenas, right? Mm -hmm. the, the sport dog world and the professional dog world, that is where I think 95% of the mistakes are made. And then you take it the next step further. If you've selected the wrong dog, they will fall into those traps, whether they're a sport dog or a professional dog. And if you selected the right dog and you have the right environment, and that's what I always preach to my handlers, the right environment. If the environment for your working dog is so much more reinforcing to not work, then why would they work? Mm -hmm. And the same fact with our working dog handlers. If their off life is so much more reinforcing than First off, I agree, we've selected the wrong dog. But second off, what the hell are you doing mm -hmm. to wreck our system? And then even especially since this is a detection talk, the, the training of the dog, I truly believe, uh, take a step back and look at the training environment and look at your odor and your odor placement and your odor thresholds and your odor availability and allow the environment and the odor to train the dog and not the handler and not the trainer. And once you set up that perfect learning environment, you're going to have a rockin' detection dog. If you do anything other than that, you're going to have a handler-dependent, falsing, unreliable detection dog. Yep. No, absolutely. And... 
you know, as we were talking, you know, before we started recording this, uh, you brought up a really unique thing that only one other guest I've had on the show uh, got to do, and that is spend time with Bob Bailey. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and those that know of him and know what I'm talking about, you know, how lucky uh, individuals are who get to spend time with him and learn from him. What is something that, what was one of the biggest takeaways you had by spending time and working with Bob Bailey? Absolutely, positively, environmental setup. If you set up the correct environment and remove all of the other extraneous distractions, you will be able to really, really train a nice animal. Bob is, for those of you that have never heard or seen him, I would highly recommend you get the long version of Patient Like the Chipmunks. You can find it on the internet from his daughter. But if you watch that and see what their team was capable of training back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, uh, he had more private contracts with the CIA for animal training than any other animal trainer in history. Oh, yeah. That should tell you a lot. Especially what he could do with cats. The cats, the ravens, mm-hmm. the um, and so long story short, when they started to uh, change the focus a little bit, or, or I shouldn't say that, divide their focus because their commercial uh, success was still enormous, but they wanted to train trainers and they used chickens as a mm-hmm. model, and so um, I was fortunate enough to do a couple of uh, very private session law enforcement training only with Bob Bailey and um, several, several sessions with Terry Ryan. The, the learning that takes place, um, Bob, Bob would tell you, he was, he was basically dropped from American law enforcement yeah. um, because several of the military and government agencies attended a seminar and when he said out completely blatantly if you can't train a chicken why would you train or trust somebody to train a seven thousand dollar malinois uh-huh and 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 that to me just resonated completely true and um i am uh, well i'm not going to make a plug but i am ready and prepared um, for 2021 in the later part that I'm going to be running law enforcement and civilian separate, of course, Mm -hmm. uh, training sessions for the chicken camps. From what I learned from Bob and Terry Ryan, there's no better training model. And and, and at the end of the day, Cameron, is – if you can't train a chicken to do a couple simple behaviors, then I don't want you around my $7,000 Malinois. No, and, and it's also, you know, Mike Suttle, as we both know, does a great job of putting on those classes in a similar nature. Absolutely. Mike is an awesome instructor. Yeah. So, you know, I, I love and please plug away that you're that you're doing this because, um, you know, as you and I are both on the mindset of, educating the human side of the leash 
is what is the most important aspect. The dog part, the animal part becomes easy once we educate ourselves. And uh, the importance that the example of, of training and working with the chickens, uh, there's so much it teaches you. And one of the things you brought up was that breaking down the environment to a, a conducive level. And, and the words I use in my classes is control the environment, not the dog. Um, by controlling the environment, controlling my variables, reducing my variables allows me to teach uh, that dog or have that dog hone in and get faster success because all I did was control the environment, allowed it to learn, get reinforcement and build out from there versus uh, a lot of things that we do uh, where we we think it's one step, but it's really actually like 10 to 15 steps if you really broke it down. Talk about what's the, uh, for you, the importance of fundamental, the fundamentals in detection dog work, starting with how to control that environment when you're first starting a dog on odor. Well, the very first thing for me is dog selection. Um, if I'm doing a, a professional dog, I require that the dog has obsessive compulsive retrieve drive. And because of that, I can introduce the odors. Um, I, 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 I hesitate to say the customs method because we did do retrieve method with our customs dogs, but some of the modifications I've learned over the years um, have tweaked that, but it is still a retrieve driven system. If I'm doing a sport dog, then I will do, um, you know, food reward or box method, not my preferred first method, but because of the operational requirements, we will change that. And then once the dog has odor acquisition, the first thing that I require that I absolutely demand is large area point-to-point and quartering exercises. And this is the dog's capability of hitting the smallest amount of odor from the longest distances. So we are, we are absolutely forging in obedience to odor at all thresholds. And then concurrently, we are doing a can opener railroad track obedience to object search pattern. And so when you combine the two, we have a dog that is literally going around a car like a can opener or going around a table and chairs like a can opener with a three-dimensional search. And then when odor is introduced to its environment, it easily leaves the search pattern to go to odor because odor trumps search pattern. And then when we've rewarded the dog for that, we bring the dog back to this exacting search pattern in a three-dimensional search, meaning the dog is breaking planes, it's investigative, it goes high on its own. Um, And these concepts are all part of the training protocol. And really, once you have that, you have a, you know, no dog is infallible, no handler is perfect, no trainer is perfect. But once you have put in these protocols, 
you have a pretty reliable exacting dog mm-hmm. no and, and you brought up some good the, the the point i wanted to talk about was uh the introduction of odor through searching on the professional side doing the the search the retrieve games um and then on the other aspect introduction or introduction to odor as a target and uh like you said both have value um and, and both work for different types of dogs obviously as we discussed that um the you know obviously intensity can come quite a bit through the dogs uh who are introduced to the odor through that searching uh aspect that dogs highly motivated to hunt uh during the hunt it encounters what it's you know a reinforcing event which is the odor and you can build some really strong intense dogs and uh on the other aspect one of the things that i had learned back in the day was you know through the shaping aspect was the introduction of odor as a target and getting the dogs to understand, Hey, I'm looking for this target in all kinds of conditions. And the, uh, like I said, both have merit, both work well. A lot of times people, uh, you know, I'll get lumped in myself as an instructor. People will assume, Oh, I must only teach the targeting effect. Cause I, I talk about indirect reward quite a bit. Uh, and that gets lumped in a lot of times with teaching odor as a target. But uh, I'm like you, I, I do a lot of it uh, through searching first, and then it morphs into targeting in a sense, uh, because like you said, I require the dog to, despite what's happening, if they you know can come across that stimulus, find that target, go to it, no matter what the initial plan was. You know, if like you said, if you're searching great here, and it's that, that odor, uh, the word I use is odor pays concept. You know, if odor's here, I'm going there. You know, I know I started here or, hey, you know, handler, you want, I know you want me to go here, but odor's here, I'm going this way. And when they have that clear understanding that odor is something that always is going to pay them, they're much more deliberate, for lack of a better term I can think of at the moment, to be, to drive to that odor, to drive to that odor so you know it's there. Um, and it comes from those fundamentals that you kind of talked about, you, you know, the, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but like you said, your environment in the very beginning is just go from point A to point B and you'll encounter this target odor. And as I encounter that, it's built through that motivation, correct? Yeah. For that's for one side of the coin, right? When we're doing, um, outdoor open area, point to points and quarterings, we're walking a certain grid pattern of point A to point B or a, a, a point A to B to C to D, and the dog will encounter the odor eventually. And that hones the dog's detection skills into the lowest threshold recognizable into the alert. And then concurrently, we are teaching search patterns by building an anticipation in the dog of if I stick my nose in every corner of the room, I will get rewarded, you know, a a certain amount, 85, 95% of the time. Then we change it to a three-dimensional search where the dog is breaking planes. And so when you start to combine that trifecta, you have a dog that is fully investigative on its own, has extreme odor obedience, and you are teaching the dog the concepts of success through your aid placement and the environment. And so 
trains, planes, automobiles, people, whatever you need to search, that dog is going out and hunting, literally hunting and sniffing in the most productive way from the reinforcement history, which is, you know, I, I know you've heard that from Susan Friedman, you know, training is the, is the training of one and the dog in front of you is the one that needs this training. And the next dog in front of you is the dog that needs this training. But overall, the training is productive areas, investigative searching, and obedience to odor at the lowest threshold from the largest distance away. Yep. No, for sure. And, you know, it's, I wanted to bring up one thing real quick so people can kind of, you know, since we don't have, this is obviously audio and not visual, uh, describe when you mean breaking the plane, what you mean, just so they can, you know, audience members who may have not heard this before will understand. I know like you talked about, you use aid placement to teach kind of a search pattern. Uh, when you say breaking the plane, so they understand, what do you mean by that? So if you, just go to any truck stop and take a look at a, at a diesel truck. You have, you know, up to 15 feet high. And when you walk around the truck, there are literally hundreds of little corners that the dog can go if they're squaring every corner. So you have that. And then you have the dimension of the height of those corners. So if we have a ladder going up to the driver's seat and then the gas tank behind that and then the uh, the latch system underneath that where the dog has anticipated a reinforcement by breaking a high plane, a low plane and continually squaring the corners around a vehicle or a room like we have a bookcase and they break the plane from the third level to the second level to the first level to the floor. Mm -hmm. So the dog is accustomed to doing a truly three-dimensional search. And people think, well, man, that's going to be really slow. But it does not really slow. Mm -mm. It is the dog's methodology for his investigation of his searching environment. And through that process with our creative aid placement, we get to build a dog that is really, really infallible. Not completely, but really, really reliable and really, really infallible. Yeah, because they, they as we all know, they, they come with the inherent uh, ability to hunt and search, but by through the training and breaking things down into those uh, fundamental processes, in, in this case, we're talking about aid placement, you're helping them be even better and more efficient at that skill. And that's one of the things that I like to try to let people know. I'm, I'm not saying this method doesn't work or that I like to train with efficiency. The older I get, I want to be more efficient about what I do. And, and I've learned by creating an environment that teaches the dog how to be efficient about how it searches creates more, you know, accuracy. Um, we're not, uh, it's not a free-for-all. The dog just runs around the room until it eventually hits odor. Uh, a dog that understands how to navigate a space 
and has been successful in these various different ways, like you described, whether it be rooms with bookshelves and, and different heights and levels and sublevels to vehicles going underneath, around the corners, things of that nature uh, comes from that just going into your training objective or the training objective of that day, which is to, okay, we're going to work on this. Let's teach, let's get this pattern. Um, so that way I don't have to, as a handler, walk backwards, present and do all the kind of crazy stuff that I would say has been what we've all learned from way back in the day, but we can do even better by being out of that sensor's way, the dog being a sensor, letting it do its job and but if we've trained it right, it'll do all those things that we wanted without the need of us to tell it to go, go here, go here, go here, go here, that kind of thing. I just want to take a quick second and welcome to our show, one of the new sponsors here at Canines Talking Sense. It's an application for your phone called Search Dog Timer or SDT. You can find Search Dog Timer currently on the Apple App Store. It's not yet out on Google, but if you have an iPhone, you're good to go. What this app does, it allows you to take a picture of your search area. And in that search area, you can place up to four icons or four markers where your odor is at and what the odor is. And as your dog searches, you can just tap the button on your screen when the dog makes a find. And it gives you a timestamp of when the dog has located that target odor. What's unique about this is it gives you information on search duration. How long did it take your dog to go from beginning its search to making the first find, uh, going from that find to the next find, and it lays it out nicely on a photo. And when you've completed your search and you hit complete, it becomes a photo in your photo reel where it shows you where uh, your, your hides are at and when your dog actually found those specific hides. So it's a fun little app to kind of use and to document your search duration and search times. And again, you can find this on the Apple App Store called Search Dog Timer SDT. And we hope you like it. I know the developer of this app would love your guys' feedback, input. Uh, As with any app, they're always able to update, uh, make changes, uh, you know, do things that we're looking for as end users. So again, I hope you guys enjoy it. Go check out the Search Dog Timer app on the Apple App Store. Canines Talking Sense webinars. You have heard from many of our guests. Well, now many of them are offering numerous webinars through our webinar platform on the Ford Canine website. All webinars can be purchased for $25 each or you can join the Ford Canine Club channel and get two webinars a month for $25. Ford Canine Club channel always has one new webinar as well as one of the episodes from the past so you can enjoy again. Go to www.fordcanine.com webinar. Are you looking to become a trainer in sport detection? Ford Canine now offers the CSDT Certified Sport Detection Dog Trainer Level 1 and 2. Each course is a one-week immersive course to help you in learning sport dog scent detection. No matter what sport program you choose, our class can help you and your future students have fun and enjoy the world of canine scent detection sports. 
Not only do we help you learn the training aspect for dogs and handlers, but we also cover import aspects to help you grow and market your current dog training business by now offering this new service of scent detection to your clients. For more information and to see upcoming classes for the rest of 2020, go to www.fordk9.com and click on the Courses tab. Show your support for Canine's Talking Sense podcast and Detection Dog Pride. Go visit our new online store where we offer all kinds of hats, shirts, mugs, detection dog tools, and much more. Go to www.fordcanine.com and click on the online store and get your new canine gear. Do not forget to check out our store often as we add new products every month. And you know what, Cameron, I look at it like a, a railroad track. On on one of the tracks, we are doing open areas, point to points, quartering exercises, where we are encouraging the dog to walk from point A to point B for point to points. And this can be hundreds of yards away from the odor. So we're instilling in crazy low thresholds with obedience to odor. And then on the other railroad track, we're instilling this expectation of corners are loaded, uh, high points are loaded. Um, If I have a a shelf in front of me, I must check all three dimensions, right? And so once we build this expectation into the dog, then the dog naturally on its own it doesn't need to stop and go and examine everything. It's a simple stop and sniff, stop and sniff, stop and sniff. People think this is a slow uh, methodology, but it's just the opposite. What we are creating is an expert in searching so that the dog is searching a three-dimensional search with the most expedient a precise precision that it can give us for that environment. But when you're lackadaisical, you're exactly right. I, I call it the, you know, we cut the dog off leash and go with God, Fluffy. I hope we're going to be successful. And it's never successful. The dog runs amok, hoping that odor smacks it in the mouth. And sometimes it does. And you get a win but a lot of times it doesn't. And, you know, we, we searched the, the Chicago Bears stadium. The people in row 19 need to know that the bomb dogs have searched there. And if Fluffy wasn't working at that point, that doesn't help them. So complete accuracy with the highest amount of speed is what we're always shooting for. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, we're moving into the next subject, which is indication. So now that the dog has located odor, um, you know, what I have seen is, um, you know, we went from a period of time, like I talked about first, was we had to have the active dogs, dogs that scratched at source and things like that. Then it became passive indication and passive indication uh, in the initial stages or the in initial years when it became used more often, dogs would get odor, spin around, look at the handler because, of course, you know, the various reasons why. But there was never, um, 
you know, focus, no one cared about initially focus to, to the odor source. Um, now that is the preferred, you know, method of indication is this beautiful stare and focus. Um, since you do get to play in both worlds, sport and the professional side, and I know you see this, I wanted to kind of talk, talk about why, um, in some cases, in the competitive world, the sport world, we don't see most times these rock solid indications. But also within the professional community, the indications kind of went the way of due to various court cases or legal guidance, you know, when it turned into a readable alert by the handler was all that was required for a while. Um, how we kind of saw something there. So talk about the importance of an indication. What are some of the things that you do to help ensure that the dogs give that solid indication? So that way, basically, let's say a, a dog layman is there, somebody who doesn't know detection dogs could go, oh, yeah, no, I that dog definitely did, you know, that something's there, that dog showed it. Uh, what do you do or and, and, and kind of cover it from both angles, one from the sport world and one from the professional world? So it, it's it's fairly easy for me. For the sport world, um, you need accuracy and the lowest time, right? We're uh, in law enforcement, we have the luxury that we're not being timed. So in the sport world, we want to see the alert, we want to see the tracing the source, and we want to see a trained final response. I find that when handlers interrupt that behavior chain, then they cause problems for themselves. That's the whole reason why you did all that work on the trained final response. And then in the professional world, um, sometimes, depending on the environment, this is where it all drops back to for me in the professional world. you know, imagine you're working the pre-primary in El Paso, Texas, where the drug smugglers will run you over. They will kill you, your dog, and your backup team. So when you have the alert, which is the physical, physiological, psychological change in behavior to trained odor, the dog is tracing the source, you immediately pull your dog out of odor and continue walking. Then you radio to your backup, hey, car with this license plate and description are loaded. And in secondary, when the driver is secured, you'll go back and you'll run that and you'll pay your dog. That's why you did all that training to have the capability of pulling your dog off of odor and not reinforcing it so that you can go back a second time and reinforce it. And a lot of times what I'm seeing now is that the, there is not a lot of clarity in the entire behavior chain with a lot of the, you know, professional dogs. Um, the dogs are allowed to alert off source. It's not necessarily at source, but we're still paying the dog. And um, I, again, behaviorally, I think that's where professionally we need to tighten our stuff up. And I I, I will be blatant with it. 
I'm not going to talk about a lot of the stuff that you and I know about <laughs> because defense attorneys are listening to sure, us. Sure. No. And, and so as we cycle into this, you know, one of the things that me and you are both very familiar with and, um, you know, I talk about quite a bit is, uh, and, and it's a hot topic many times in the detection dog world is the direct versus indirect reward. The, those who use a bridge marker system versus those that, um, have the thought process that my dog must be convinced that the reward comes only from the odor source. Talk a little <laughs> bit, yeah. Talk a little bit about that because you know I always talk about it, but I like to have people hear somebody else with you know a different background and uh, education talk about why you know one versus the other, and and you know so they can hear from you, who's a different person than me, uh, talk about some of the same things. So no, it's a it's an absolutely great question, and it. It, and, and I can't help but laugh at it. Um, it. It really is a great question. So in early learning, right, when we're doing um, Pavlov, then it is important that the dog be reinforced near source. But once we morph into Skinnerian training, that this behavior will bring a reinforcement then it's idiotic to think that rewarding near source is necessary. And I'll give you a great example. One of our contracts in Iraq was doing sticks of vehicles. So they would literally pull in 15 to 20 vehicles. The, the drivers and passengers would get out. They would open the doors, open the hoods, open everything. They would go behind a blast wall. Once they were there, our handlers would come out and they would clear the vehicles with the hoods open, with the doors open, the trunks open, everything open on the car. They would go back behind the blast wall if they didn't get any alerts and they would whistle and then all the people would come out and they would close up everything. So we were asked by the military, could we train a dog? to just go around the vehicles with people, with everything closed up with the same accuracy. And you know how government contracts work. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you're the, you're the idea people and sometimes you get the contract. Mm -hmm. Well, for this contract, we were the idea people. So we had a dog come out from a blast wall without a handler, searching people inside the cars with open windows, closed windows, open trunks, closed trunks, et cetera, et cetera, whatever the, the situation was. But the fact is the drivers never left the vehicle. So this expedited this by, mm -hmm. you know, an enormous amount of time. And with about 97% accuracy, which was the same that we did it in the old way, the dogs were successful. When they did get a hit, they got a a rock rock, a, a, a basically a bike horn. Okay, and then they'd run back to the the secured area and get their ball mm -hmm. with no degradation of their behavior or their searching. Correct. And so once the dogs have the 
the odor and they realize we're training Skinnerian, right? Mm -hmm. The dog performs a behavior and the behavior is marked and then reinforcement is anticipated. It does not need to be delivered near source at that point. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to play the drug dog handler for you because this is, as we both know, the typical conversation goes as such. Oh, well, that's great for mom dog guys. That makes total sense, you know, because they don't want to be near that. But, you know, I work a drug dog. So um, my dog is leaving odor to get reward. And that is beyond wrong. That That is the antichrist of dog training is to have to pay your dog away from odor. I, why would I call my dog off of odor and get his reward? My dog's alert's going to be like crap. My dog's basically going to go to odor and just run back to me. Why would he stay there? How do you answer that typical conversation that comes through this you know, type of discussion? Super simple. So they, they are mixing up um, the, what the dog's job is. So the dog's job is to hunt to source or as close as source as they can get, right? And then deliver a trained final response. Once the trained final response is delivered, it is irrelevant, completely irrelevant, where the dog is reinforced from that point. It can be at source, away from source, and there are thousands of bomb dogs across the world that have proven that to be successful. So there the the and if you're if you're worried about the watering down of your trained final response, then you're not familiar with the science. The dog has performed, number one, I've got odor. Plus, number two, I have traced odor to source. Plus, number three, I have delivered my trained final response. At that point, the dog's nose has stopped working and he is now in the reinforcement mode and you can mark and deliver or simply deliver. It doesn't matter. The, the dog's job is done and he's waiting for payment. And the delivery of the payment is irrelevant to the dog. He Correct. just wants to get paid. And, and you bring up, which is the part I bring up to in the same conversation is, okay, first I'll ask them, did they understand what a condition reinforcer is? And most, it's probably they don't. So then I'll talk about, okay, well, you guys have heard Pavlov, correct? Yes, you know, and you brought that up already too. And I'll say, okay, so you understand the concept, what the bell and food turned into, and, you know, the bell eventually elicited the same response as the food did. Yeah, 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 I got all that. Okay, good. So when we use a audible signal, that audible signal is now that conditioned reinforcer. Just as you're walking behind your dog, to go pay them. That's the same thing, guys. Oh, well, uh, and I'm like, you walking behind because right, you, you don't, you can't pay from your left too far, your right too far. You sure as hell are going to pay <laughs> in front of your dog because you're like, well, my dog's gonna look at me. So I don't want him to see it. Okay. So one, you've identified first a limitation in, in your delivery system. You know, you have to be in a certain area in order to reward your dog. Otherwise you're afraid of being caught. Second part is let's already evaluate this part of the equation. Do you think your dog doesn't know you have the toy? 
Exactly. So, so I let them know. So what you've really trained, and this is not wrong, but what you've really trained is an obedient behavior. The dog knows you have a toy. The dog's going, okay, I understand the system now. You just want me to hold this position until you throw a ball over my head. And I let them know is, okay, so here's what you've done now. Now you've, you've done this. Why not just give a signal that means the same thing? You're already doing it, except you're playing cards with your cards facing your dog. Your dog knows you're doing these things. So why not create a system that allows you to be anywhere, whether you're in front of your dog, behind your dog, left, right, whatever you are, that it knows by that signal means it gets paid. And the beauty part is, as you know, uh, those that actually apply a variable reward system, they can get that signal and then continue searching. They don't have to always follow up with their reinforcer. The, the condition reinforcer gives them the same, you know, mental physiological response, whether it's followed up with that high value reward or not every single time. In fact, as we already know, psychology wise has told us, we don't always have to follow it up with a high value. This is why where I live exists. Las Vegas is nothing but this system. So the, and, and I try to help understand, you know, that, um, the, the way that they were educated in the belief that that dog must get paid only at, you know, source, you must, you know, have that toy bounce right off there. Otherwise, your alert's going to degrade. Otherwise, you know, um, you're, you need to even drag that dog up to odor. And I, and I when I hear that one, I usually say, OK, so let's talk about opposition reflex. you you are now dragging the dog to odor who's pulling you away from odor but you think you're creating us all this fight there you're actually creating in without knowing it in some cases opposition to the odor because you're trying to drag them to it while they're trying to drag away and all it really is is a game to them anyway so you know like i always tell them i'm not going to say it what you're doing doesn't work because there is a level of it works but why not be more efficient in just like you said the communication aspect the continuity of communication, go search. Oh, I, I've in this area, I have identified the target odor I'm looking for. Okay, here's where it's at the best. Okay, now I'm going to tell you, I now I'm going to tell you this is the best I've got. And they do that through that whatever body position they, they want to be in. You know, I'm not a stickler for it has to be a sit. If I've, you know, I've been dealing with a lot of pointers recently. So what I love about them is my joke a lot of times is they're they're virtually handler proof when it comes to indication because genetically they already come with that freeze and you, a lot of times you're not going to get them to do anything else besides lock up. So I love it for the fact of, uh, you know, kind of, you know, again, me and you've been around long enough you, when you, we first started handling Malinois to uh, police dog handlers back in the late 90s, early, you're like, hey, dude, just hold the leash. If the person's there, the dog's going to bite them. That's all you got to worry about. Just hang, you know, the dog's got the rest of it. Uh, now I, I, I joke around with the detection dog people. I'm like, look, if this dog knows odor, it's a pointer. It's going to do this. You, you know, luckily enough, if it understands this is what it's looking for now, it's going to indicate for you genetically because it's been bred to this comes out of it really easily. And it makes it easy for that new handler to go, I, I think my dog's found something. It's on point. And like I tell them, the nice version of that is anybody else who's watching goes, oh yeah, that dog was on point. You, know, you can see it doing this. Um, so the position becomes, um, not as relevant, but I'm also very much a proponent of there needs to be something. And and I use the words, my friend, Andy Weinman likes to uh, bring up a lot of times him and Ted will always make sure handlers understand a demonstrative, you know, behavior, you know, whether it be barking, whatever it is, 
needs to be demonstrative so that way, again, uh, anybody who's layman, judge, jury, etc., we're watching something go, oh, yeah, that that definitely happened. It's not like this little head snap and my tail wagged three times, and my dog's ear turned, and that's how I know something's there. It, it Whatever that behavior is, it's, you know, loud and proud. We know it's it, the, the dog is telling us, hey, odor is here. Is is that along the same lines? Well, the only the only argument that I would have with that, and and this comes directly from my my time with customs, is that um, you know when you're there's a, there's a big difference, and I know you can appreciate this from the anti terrorism work. Sure, but there's a there's a big difference between a, a kid in college that has a baggie in his glove box versus a professional smuggler Mm -hmm, that's got mm -hmm. 40 pounds of heroin wrapped in PVC pipe and it's being smuggled inside the diesel gas tank. Mm -hmm, And so the, the level of detector dog training that you need for the first situation is good, but it's not awesome. Sure. And then for the second situation, it's, pretty fucking awesome Mm -hmm. that you know if that dog isn't in point on on point completely he's going to have that miss and so i I, again i i always have to default to operational necessities correct and um that's where the big separation for me comes in from the sport dog world where we're being timed and you know toy dogs are not necessarily the preferred thing because it eats up cloth. Whereas I need a dog that can search for, you know, an hour and a half Mm -hmm. and search well with a 95, 97% accuracy rate in the Chicago Bears stadium. Um, And then when you drop back to the, you know, a U.S. customs uh, border point, you need to have that 97% that's looking for, narcotics that have been purposely hidden Mm -hmm. from the dog and from inspectors. And so I I think the level of your game, if you will, it has to do with the level of your training. If I'm working in, you know, a college town in Ohio, then I'm probably not going to be worried about the 30 pounds of heroin in the gas tank of a semi-tractor trailer. Sure. So there's all these different variances that have to do with our operational environment. And I think sometimes that gets lost. No, for sure. And, and obviously we are speaking the same language because I'm, you know, fully saying exactly the same thing is that indication needs to be solid, especially like you said, when we're looking for, you know, in some cases, it's a minute amount of odor escaping from the the way it's being smuggled. Um, and then, you know, let's say something that's got even more available odor, whether it be, like you said, something that's not being intentionally smuggled, but just slightly hidden inside a car. Either one, the dog needs to do it, but the other one will require a dog to work harder to get there to then really make sure they commit. Um, and then you bring up a great point in the, in the sport world, you know, they're very, you know, especially for the first, you know, few legs of the sport world, um, odor is really prevalent. And of course the material being used, the essential oils 
um, are incredible with how much they they off gas, and, and that's of course why it's it's been done. It also presents a level of difficulty too, um, depending on what level they're at as far as converging odors and uh, how much this can really uh, change for some dogs. It's level to get how close to it because of other things that go on, but um, at the end of the day. Uh, in one aspect, we need to have that really good dog who understands work it all the way possible. Give me a good, solid indication. The other, the other aspect is like you said, you're timed. So you may not need, and I'm going to use a sport world that says you may not need this like rock solid, super perfect indication. And you can read that. Okay. Yes. I know my dog, my dog is doing this. It's, it smelled kind of froze for a second. Uh, there's, there's, there's odor there and, and that can work. Um, but yeah, the, the biggest thing I think that's, you know, I've seen kind of go back and forth a little bit is uh, what people are requiring as far as the indication goes. Um, you know, me, I want that indication to be extremely solid, extremely clear. Um, whether the dog's in a sit position or not is not relevant to me as long as its behavior is demonstrative and it is doing this, this is the, it's consistent behavior. So for lack of a better term, pointing is pointing, sitting and focusing is sitting and focusing, uh, barking is barking, you know, whatever it is, it is consistent, reliable, and it's reproduced, you know, each time that dog gets to that odor source, the strongest amount of odor, uh, as close as possible to where it's emitting from. So, I, I would I would love to play off on that for just a second Please. because um, there is in in for my past experience there is a difference right and that's what that's why I was saying about the different environments if I, and I, I agree in the perfect world you're going to get the full behavior chain all the way up to and including the trained final response but when it, I, I can't go into the details, but um, when I was in New Gallus, Arizona, as a branch chief for U.S. Customs, we did an experiment basically looking at the masking materials and packaging barriers that were from marijuana versus heroin versus cocaine. Uh, And, of course, methamphetamines were in there, but those were not in our top three seizures. and. When you, when you started to look at the handler's capability of reading their dogs, and this is where, Cameron, I'll just tell you straight up, this is where our law enforcement is failing us by not hiring enough expert witnesses to defend against the fucking other side. And this is where we're really hurting. Because I have had handlers that have had a a head check and an investigative sniff, and they called that, and they were correct, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what their dog does. I'm tracking with your. I'm tracking where you're going now. I I, keep going. And so, when you get to court, and the defense attorneys are asking, "Well, dog, did your dog sit?" Well, no, he didn't fucking sit because number one, I would never allow him to sit. And number two, I saw enough to call the alert. And if we waited for him to sit, we might have been killed. But too many times we've lost those cases because nobody had an expert witness to defend it. And no, I don't need to see my dog sit. I know that change of behavior. It's a physiological change in breathing. 
It's a physical change in their dog's motor patterns, and it's a psychological change in the excitement of the dog. I can articulate that. Yeah, for because sure. Because I've seen it hundreds of times in training. Yes, in training, the dog will go to a final bite, scratch, or sit. But I'm not getting run over by the Guadalajara cartel to get all of that. Yeah, no, for sure. No, and that's a, a great, great, great point that, yeah, now I now I was, uh, I'm understanding where you were coming from when you were talking about the the handler being able to read their dogs, uh, especially in what you're talking about there, which is ironically similar to how some of the sport handlers work. They can see those subtle changes and go, I'm calling my target here, calling alert here. Um and the importance of, like you just said, somebody working the border, uh, somebody who's can read their dog and go, hey, I'm calling that. You know, there's I know my dog. I know through my training and experience. This is what my dog is telling me. This is there is target odor present. And it, it is a very valid point that uh, you can. And we all know that, you know, I know like you said on the law enforcement side they do struggle with when it comes to court, having the right people to articulate that better than the handler and, or maybe sometimes the trainer who's only been new at it to say, Hey, look, um, yes, my dog didn't go. And, and I'll say this, a lot of times agencies have shot themselves in the foot because they put things in policy that the dog must, or the dog's indication is this. And just like yes. you said, because they say that and they put it in black and white that the dog must do this as a indication. Well, then now they've screwed themselves because like you said, it wasn't on video. Your dog didn't do that. And you say right here or your certification standard requires that and you didn't do it here. Then you're trying to like talk your way out of this thing, uh, knowing that there's all, you know, I use actually photos in my lectures of dogs in different positions and every handler can go, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, you can definitely tell the dogs got odor there. Well, the dog wasn't sitting, was it? No, exactly. Cause like you said, either it couldn't or we didn't want it to, it wasn't safe to, and we still knew the dog was telling us, Hey, I have yes. found what we're looking for. And that's, a, and that's a, I'm glad you brought that up because you know, as I was honing in on the importance of an indication, we don't want to forget the, also the importance of, knowing those nuances or those behavior chains that are all you know that are basically reliable to tell the handler even even it's the it's the antecedent behaviors before that trained final response Cameron there's a great case from Canada and uh, they they modeled their their uh, sellable line after the OJ Simpson case and it said, <laughs> if she doesn't sit, you must acquit. Uh-huh. So uh, have you seen this video? Yes. I, the one where the, is like the curbs in the way, basically. Exactly. Yeah. So the dog is in a halfway stand, halfway sit. And the defense won the case yep. because the dog didn't sit. Yeah. Because they grilled the handler. And he said, well, my dog sits as an indication. Yeah. But when she couldn't sit, they said, okay, well, she's not sitting. So... There's no indication, and they won that case. Yeah, yeah. No, and I so remember, and I remember the freak out the, from that. Those are the kind of stuff that we just need more expert witnesses, correct, to combat that idiocy from the defense. Correct. No, I, I totally agree. I totally agree. Um, I'm going to circle into something real quick. You know, as I start winding this down. Um, so one of the, you know, as we both know, 
odor recognition testing or scent identification as a more commonly used in Europe as far as dog when you're when you present a lineup let's say or many like items the dogs present with a yes or no you know response to the lineup like the item one yes or no item two yes or no and so on and so forth um in the bomb world obviously like where you came from you were very familiar with the atf nort system and so forth um and it's finally reaching a level of importance in the narcotics world uh for just the simple basic line demonstration of dogs you know when presented let's say these 10 items the dog correctly indicated in the lineup that you know spot a spot g spot whatever uh contained narcotics the other ones that had proofing or distracting or were blank the dog correctly did not show any indication to those are you seeing or how do you feel because obviously you know again we both come from the bomb world and the sport world both of those segments do ORTs regularly um how good or or how which which you're feeling for the narcotics guys to start looking at this? So I think it's super important um, simply because of uh, some of the latest um, defense stuff about the cueing of the dog, hand presentations, and everything else. And so the the other thing that I found is just poor documentation. We've got to get after our guys for documentation and. When the dog has correctly done a lineup with a bounce fabric softener and uncirculated, untainted money, et cetera, et cetera, then this has to be clearly documented in the training records. And I think it's going nowhere, but further and further along those lines, the least amount of handler involvement with the most amount of distractors documented on your paperwork to be ready to be submitted and discovered. And I just think, you know, (laughs) we're dog handlers. Let's face it on, on record keeping, most people are a little bit lazy and we've just got to get better at the documentation on the training we're doing. And uh, don't be afraid to put in a miss. Of course. I think that's the the other huge thing. Uh, You know, if, if I'm, I, of course, I never would. But if if the defense looks at your training records and you're a hundred percent, I know fine. we're yes, lying. You're absolutely screwed. Yeah. And so, with no, but nothing in the world is a hundred percent. So when you have a training problem, document it. Document the work you did to improve it, mm-hmm. and then document you tested this double blind, single blind, however, and the dog is fixed and you're back rolling again. Exactly. I I use the word in, you know, it may not be telling you the perfect word for it, but I use calibration. I call the ORT like your calibration. It's like whether you're calibrating your breathalyzer, your, you know, your, your radar or laser, um, you're testing the machine and, it, and is it accurate? And an ORT is a great baseline of that. Plus, for all those handlers who feel like they have to put out every odor when they go training, well, guess what? Doing an, a, an odor lineup or the scent wheel or whatever you choose to use in that same kind of format as an ORT, guess what you're doing? You're running every odor. So therefore, yes. like you brought up earlier, the importance of your operational training, your operational training may have no odor present and you are getting really good training because you're also able to document, like you said, 
you successfully searched area X, whatever it is, and you came back and your dog did not indicate, you did not call any indication, and lo and behold, there was no you know, substance or training, uh, no odor was placed out, no source placed out. And that is critically as important as the constant mentality of, oh, I got to put odor out. Everywhere I go, put odor out. Well, I'm, I'm have, I got one room to train in, let's put out three odors. You know, because I have three odors I have to go find, so let's put them all out. And it gets us away from that. The ORT setup allows you to do the odor stuff and do exactly what you said. You know, I do it all the time with my guys that come to school here is I come up with all kinds of crazy stuff to put in the other arms of the wheel or my lineup uh, stuff that I have. I, I, like, I've got needle and syringe, money, like you said, firearms. I'll even put in decomposition of human you know, remains for the dogs that aren't human remains dogs catfish bait, all kinds of cra- if i can think of it and i can fit in the, the lineup i'm putting it there and i and i and i write it all out in the dry erase board so that way when the handlers come in they get a they take a photo of all that's out there in the lineup when they're done training so that way they can document yes my dog correctly indicated to the spot and again it's all blind to them so they all they can call out is a number or a letter and they get confirmed yep you're right uh if they're if it's incorrect you know, like you said, let's find out why you're incorrect. Is it the dog's drawn to this for whatever reason? Okay, good. Let, now let's address this. And like you said, it's, there's the importance of showing that. You know, we're no longer these dog wizards that come to court with our four-inch binder and go, well, yeah, the, you, you have to believe me. See that big folder there? That'll tell you my dog's perfect. And, you know, people aren't taking that crap anymore. Um, obviously the advent of video everywhere paints a picture right, wrong, or indifferent sometimes, uh, of what occurred. And I, I, I am encouraging handlers to do, put your body cameras on during search so you can learn, but then you get used to doing things in this way. You, you have to be transparent. And one of the easiest ways to do this is an ORT. If I want to invite city council members out, you know, and I, and I train my dog enough, I can, I can ask them, okay, guys, where do you want to have the odor put out? What letter? And, and so they feel they're a part of this. And then they get to watch a dog run and watch a dog identify the odor and ignore the various distractors. And that creates that, that feeling of, okay, the dog is reliable. Or this team, like you said, the team is reliable because the handler can only re- read and work their dog. And the dog does what it's trained to do and give its indication to the correct you know, target locations. And that alleviates a lot of the defense attacks of your biased or your dogs alerting to other non-target materials that you don't know are present and so on and so forth. It, it just makes your life, especially with Fourth Amendment search and seizure rights, you are better protecting yourself to answer those questions by implementing a very simple thing. It's not scary, but so many get scared of it when you tell them, Hey, we're going to do an odor recognition test or an odor lineup. Oh, I freaking hate that. My dog finds odor no problem in the environments. Yeah, because a lot of times it's the only salient odor in the environment. You know, I can get a pound puppy and walk it in. I guarantee it'll show interest in the same spot your dog does. Exactly. <laughs> so, so you know, with that said, you know, I'm, I'm glad to hear, you know, and I, I asked the same question to the guys on a, a previous podcast from NYPD, and they all do it. You know, it, it's, it's, it's a staple, and it's a staple now – with a lot of uh, other places and close to you, I know uh, the state of Illinois mandates the certification now starts off with the odor recognition test and then it goes into the other phases. So, well, and I, and I think the, the second part that 
Um, you know, we we talked about loosely with Swig Dog. Mm-hmm. We didn't really enforce it. And now with NIST, yep. um, it's becoming more important. But, I mean, people are afraid of a double-blind test. But it, it's very simple to set up. You have warehouse A and nobody's there and warehouse B and nobody's there. And you 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 punch up on your iPhone, uh, is it odd or even? And send your guys there and they come back and tell you the results. Yeah. And I mean, so double blind testing is, is nerve wracking for some people, but that's the, that's the golden standard yeah. by scientific standards. Yeah. So once you've done the odor recognition and double blind testing, man, you're giving defense nowhere to go. Yeah. You've cut off a lot of the alleys and, you know, and I love the thing I get, and I'm sure you do. But Don, what if I reward? I'm doing the double blind, and my dog indicates to something. I rewarded him, and it was cigarettes. Now my dog's gonna find cigarettes from now on, Don. What am I gonna do? I needed you there to tell me no and keep my dog going. You know. Yeah, you know what I tell him. <laughs> Give me your tennis ball before you walk in that fucking warehouse. <laughs> You're not going to reward shit. I know. You do it all the time. It, uh, on, at customs, you were forbidden, absolutely forbidden, to reward your dog on an alert. No matter how strong it was, no matter how believable it was, because we had the backup of hundreds of hours of training in this dog that if he was right and you didn't pay him and you praised him off, he didn't care. Yeah. And if he was wrong and you praised him off, then you didn't pay him on the wrong stuff. So he wasn't going to hit uh, tobacco or chicharrones or anything else exactly. that was on the border. No, and that's the same thing I, I tell them. I said, if this is your fear, you aren't ready for that phase anyway. So exactly, <laughs> we, we need to go back a few steps if you're scared that you're going to do this. Um, and then it also gives me an opportunity to then bring back into the, the bridge, you know, stuff. I'm like, just give your dog the bridge and move on. You know, if, if it, you know, if it turns out for whatever stupid reason, your dog decided to give that indication, well, guess what? We're going to address it, talk about it, we'll figure it out. We all know they're not perfect, but it, it, you you can't set up your training to be a hundred percent failure safe. You you have to understand that you if I expect you to go out there and search people's property, and you want to call you want to do that without training wheels on, you should be able to do in, in training as well. Go do that double blind. And I was lucky enough to take part of the research with 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 uh, Nathan Hall, and we looked at, you know, double blind versus single blind. And like you said, yeah, we fully agree. Double blind is really good. What we got to see, which was cool, was at the end of the day, the accuracy level of the dog teams didn't dramatically change between single and double blind. What did change was how long they searched for. (laughs) That was, it was pretty much consistently 30% longer search times in double blind areas. Um, As far as proficiency levels, uh, the the dog's numbers were all about the same. It, there was no huge, you know, dramatic, there was difference, but there wasn't a dramatic difference. But the important one was the handler part of it. You know, exactly. And that was the part we wanted to get them to go through. We also wanted to help in some cases for, um, hey, look, if they never, if they, you know, if they did plenty of single blinds and they never did a double blind, it did not mean the team was, you know, uh, a problem or or not reliable. 
they can still be reliable by doing single blind. And we still recommended doing double blind, but the absence of double blind throughout uh, was not criteria to say that they weren't reliable. You know, exactly. No, I, I agree a hundred percent. And, and it, it was good. And that's been helpful. It's been, you know, I've been brought in or, or asked to talk about that on a few court cases, you know, specifically when it came up in Utah. Um, and, and it's once you articulate it and you show the study and you say, Hey, look, you know, and, and like you said, I, I do that. My guys hate it at times, but I do exactly what you said is I say, okay, here's a couple areas. I'm not going with you. I'm going to sit here on my phone and screw off while you go do your search. Come back. Tell me what you got. And they're like, Ugh, you know, and but I said, it, by doing that, you're going to have confidence. You, you need to have this confidence. I don't want you figuring this out on your deployments. I want to put you through this now. So when you do have those deployments, you're actually comfortable. Exactly. I mean, that's the, that's the whole reason for that preparation. If we're going to have a mistake, let's do it in training and let's not do it when your ass is on the line with a real bomb. Absolutely. And it, and it, and it goes into the final part of all this, which is creating that reliable team. And, and I have fun doing this even with the nose work people. Um, you know, a lot of the nose work ladies in my area always know that, oh gosh, it's Cameron search. And I know I love what one of the ones you do to your people. Um, but you know, they don't know how many blanks they're going to have, but they sure as heck know when they're running with me, it's not a find, you know, most of the time. And, you know, for me, I want them to see, cause I know in competition, there's multiple finds a lot of times. I want them when they're in training to go through those lengthy periods of time, because now the sports are kind of embracing more and more blanks to the uh, different levels. And uh, so I want them to get comfortable with that feeling. Um, the one of the things I love that you do is the hundred box challenge and, <laughs> and talk about that. And for, as we wrap this up, talk about that and how that kind of, you know, shook some people when you first threw that out there to everybody. Well, we're right now it's scheduled for anybody that's interested. It's going to be scheduled for uh, April 18th uh, in Rochelle, Illinois. But um, so there was a lot of competitors in the nose work community. And I just thought it'd be a really fun challenge. So we had, um, I think in the, we had two runs, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. And we changed out all 100 boxes between the two, but we had live animals. Um, we had two boxes of live mice. And for the PETA people listening, um, yes, they were protected. And yes, they went back to the pet shop. And uh, we had every distractor you could think of from uh, llama poop and cow poop and uh, goat pee, everything in between. And we had, um, everything was hot um, as far as there was an odor in every box for the 100 boxes. Um, I think we went from nine odors in the morning to 13 in the afternoon. But what you found was, and, and it's what I preach in detector dog training, is dogs have affinities just like human beings. So if they like blue cheese, then they really like sharp cheddar cheese. And so they're going to false alert on all of the 10 cheeses that I have out. And when you put a really heavy distractor like llama poop in front of birch, chances are they're going to be brain clogged and not hit the birch. 
And so within a couple of runs, though, you find that the dog's mind stops clogging up and then they start to be able to process the discriminations much more quickly, which is why I, you know, when I'm teaching fundamentals, it's odor recognition and then it's distractions and discriminations and then it's threshold. But it's always taught in that order because of this reason. Because you can clog a dog's brain up if you put bitchin' season heat in front of anise. They're not going to process anise, I promise you. But by the third run, if they're enough motivated and the reinforcement history is there, they're going to do just fine. Oh, yeah. And so, uh, you know, it was it was really exciting. It was a, a good learning experience, I think, for all the participants. But, I, I mean, you know, Cameron, you work around them. There's some nose work dogs out there that I have tried to buy <laughs> to, oh, yeah. to flip over to bombs and narcotics because they're smoking hot. Oh, yeah. I've seen some really, really, really nice uh, dogs that are in the sport community. You're like, oh, I, what I could do with that dog in, in, as a professional, you know, in the professional realm, without a doubt. So how do people find you? Uh, how do they contact you if they're interested, of course, in your upcoming schools, uh, you, with the training that you do, that you offer for both the law enforcement and the sport world? How do we find you? How do we get a hold of you? So the easiest way is my uh, website, ciak9.org. And no, I'm sorry, that's .net. Okay. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm don't worry. I'll have a, I'll put a link to it in plug. the show notes. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and that's and K or, and number nine or K nine spelled out. Nope. CIA and the letter K, the number nine okay. dot net. Um, net. That's my webpage. Um, you can Google Don Blair. Mm -hmm. They should get me that way. Yep. And, um, if they want to text, um, it's, uh, six, three, zero, five, four, zero, Six one eight zero is my business phone. Perfect, perfect. And I have one last question for you. Um, because of podcasts like this one, I get always people with questions who want to learn visually as well. Um, and you and I can work out the details on this. Would you like to, or would you be willing to do a webinar with me on the Canines Talking Sense webinar platform on any topic that you would like to talk about? Absolutely. Perfect. So what I'll do is uh, um, obviously we'll get to, you know, I'll communicate with you and we'll get something uh, put out. So by the time this airs, which will be probably after the holidays, uh, we can shoot for something around, you know, let's say February-ish. That way people can hear this and we will uh, have a webinar out and uh, we'll, of course, publish it like we typically do through the social media, you sharing and I'm sharing it and we'll get people to, you know, go sign up for it because it's the podcast always ends up being a great jumping off point. You know, people can hear things, but just having sometimes the videos or the PowerPoint uh, slides uh, really bring home uh, some really good information that it's kind of harder to kind of wrap your head around when you're, you know, in a car driving around listening to this or working out, etc. So I, I appreciate that. And we'll definitely get it together. And most of all, I know as busy as you are, Thank you so much for, for coming on and uh, taking time out tonight. 
uh, for this podcast uh, and just sharing a, so much great information with us. Well, Cameron, thanks so much for having me. And um, you and I should talk offline and uh, maybe think about doing a seminar um, out your way or out my way. Oh, yeah. Um, together sometime. Oh, without a doubt. Count me in, especially now that I know you've got a new place going. I would love to go there. I would love to have you out here uh, just because, you know, we're growing too, you know, for canine, what I've been doing. And I, and, it's hard to find. It's not as hard as it used to be, but I I love working with like-minded trainers because the flow when we, when we're doing seminars and webinars together, uh, just the people attending get so much from it because, um, you know, whether it's you, me, whoever they're, they're getting continuity information and to be able to help each other out, uh, and help out people who want to learn is, is just, uh, to me, I love it. I have so much fun doing that. No, I agree a hundred percent. And, uh, if you, uh, if you're in contact with Mike, I mean, he's one of my best friends and he's just a stupendous trainer. And, uh, I've, I'm working one of his puppies right now for uh, Same human here. remains. Uh, and so, um, just a, just a tremendous guy. Oh yeah. No, he's, he's going to be on the 2021 uh, calendar for canines talking sense as well as, you know, it's hard wrangling him down sometimes too, when he's not driving from one coast to the other coast (laughs) (laughs) doing it, doing his stuff. Um, but no, again, thank you so much for coming on. Um, obviously we got a lot planned. So you listeners out there, you can, you're going to see Cameron and Don doing some stuff together, webinars, in-person seminars. So, On that, everybody, thanks for listening to Canines Talking Sense, where it's okay to be nosy. Nosy.